It is good to be together today. If you are if you are new with us, there's cards on your chairs. You can fill out a card if you haven't filled out a card ever before and drop it in the offering box on the way out. Um, if you weren't able to get a hold of me this week, it's because I lost my phone in the whiteout that we had. It fell out of my bag, but I found it, so we're good to go. So, I meant I found it as in. So, um, so feel free to call me anytime now. Jess actually found it this morning on our way over. It was uh, the snow was melting, and there she lay. My bag has a hole in it, and it fell out of my bag. All right, I've always wanted to do that. I hate that phone. All right. Wait a second. I need some contacts. I'll fix it later. All right. Can we turn your Bibles to Hebrews? Hebrews chapter 2 is where we are at today. We're going to be looking at verses 5 through the end of the chapter this morning. Let me just go ahead and read the first couple verses here. Let's start with verse 5. It is not to angels that he has subjected the world to come about which we are speaking, but there is a place where someone has testified, what is man that you are mindful of him? The son of man that you care for him. You made him a little lower than the angels. You crowned him with glory and honor and put everything under his feet. In putting everything under him, God left nothing that is not subject to him. Yet at present, we do not see everything subject to him, but we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God, he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Last week we looked at the first four verses of this chapter, which, in which the author was imploring us to, to keep our eyes focused on this fixed landing point, to be intentional about moving in that direction and getting off at that fixed landing point. And that fixed landing point is Christ. Keeping our eyes focused on Christ and what, what, where this is now developing is this. This is what that fixed landing point is. That fixed landing point where we need to be, you know, rowing our kayaks toward and getting off, that fixed landing point is a new world. It's a whole new order. And then the question is, so who's ruling this new world? Who's ruling this new order? And what this is telling us is that Christ is the king of this new world. So it's a place of of, of peace. It's a place where there is no more death. There is no more suffering. There is, there are no more tears. They've all been wiped away. And, and so this isn't some far off, distant heaven in the future. And it's not some kind of nirvana, but it's literally a new world. And what this is saying is that in this new world, everything is subject to Christ. Everything is subject to Christ. Yet at the present, it doesn't look like that. At the present, we don't see everything subject to him. We've drifted so far downstream. We're caught in this world of sin and destruction where there is death, there is suffering, there, there are plenty of tears. And we're like enslaved to this. 
and we're looking around us and we're like, you know, this is telling me that everything is subject to Jesus, that Jesus is actually the ruler of everything, but I'm not seeing that. And the author actually confronts us. He's like, you know, you don't see it right now. It doesn't appear that way right now because we're so far downstream. We've drifted so far. We are so lost. We are so enslaved to the world around us. But what he's saying, where is our hope? Look at verse 9 again. He says, but we see Jesus. It doesn't look like it right now. I know everything is really tweaked. Everything, it's not the way it's supposed to be. But we see Jesus. And so that's why we fix our eyes on Christ. That's why we move in that direction. This is that one hope that we have. So we focus on Jesus. Let's keep reading to, uh, again. But we see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, now crowned with glory and honor, because he suffered death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. In bringing many sons to glory, it was fitting that God, for whom and through whom everything exists, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Both the one who makes men holy and those who are made holy are of the same family. So Jesus is not ashamed to call them brothers. He says, I will declare your name to my brothers. In the presence of the congregation, I will sing your praises. Have you guys seen the movie, um, A River Runs Through It? Have you seen that movie? In the movie, there's these two brothers. We've got a picture here. Two brothers, right? One is the, the kind of like this upright, wealth, uh, what, what would you call him, a goody two-shoes sort of brother? Does everything right? The other one, Brad Pitt, play, he plays this part of this younger brother. who's He's, he's this tearaway sort of brother. He's always getting into scrapes. He's, he's always pushing the boundaries. Uh, he's always running around with influences, which are dragging him down. And as the story goes on, if you guys have seen the movie, what happens is, is the younger brother gets so, law, uh, so, so caught up, so enslaved, maybe you could say, to his own destruction. He's gambling, he's, he, he's into alcohol, and he, he's so enslaved to these things that it's as if there is no way out for him. I mean, he's, he's, he's so deep. And then the, the older brother tries to save him. He, the older brother cares for him deeply. But they've grown apart. And there's nothing the older brother can do to save the younger brother. No matter how hard he tries. And then the younger brother dies in a brawl. And it's really a tragic story. And if, if anybody has ever had a sibling who is sort of that, that tearaway sibling, that, that sibling, maybe a younger sibling, maybe an older sibling for that matter, who is always getting into scrapes, they're pushing the boundaries, they're running around with influences which are dragging them down, they're getting into things which are destructive, they're, they're getting, it's, it's gotten to the point where they're just on this spiral, and it's getting worse, and it's getting worse, and it's getting worse. And you've tried to talk to them, but it's only come across as preaching, Right? You've tried to look at them, and they just feel like you're looking down your nose at them. You've, you've tried to pursue them, and it's pushed them farther away. And then you've tried to back off, and they've gone farther away. And you don't know what to do. For anybody who's ever had that kind of experience with a sibling, you know that you, you would do anything 
to save your brother or your sister. Would you not? You would do anything. You would, you would take their place. You would, like, literally change places with them. I mean, for this older brother in the movie, if he could have changed places and, and somehow all of this, this uh, destruction that the younger brother has gotten into, if he could have changed those places with him, and if he could have just taken the, the, the brunt of all that suffering, he would have. But the thing is, is it's the, the, the relationship has grown apart, and there's this huge gulf that will never be crossed. It's impossible to just cross that gulf. It's impossible to, to journey across that gap. And it often ends in tragedy, like the movie. And what, this, is, this is the picture that Hebrews is presenting for us. Is What he's saying is this. Is that Christ, who is, he is the king of this new world, but he's not only the king, he's also our brother. He's been made like us. He's our brother. And with that same kind of love that a brother has for that tearaway sibling, with that same kind of love, Christ has that passion for us. He has that passion for you. And, and where in the movie, the, the younger brother, his, his uh, destruction was found in, in gambling and in alcohol. For us, it's sin and it's death. You could even say it's the fear of death. And we're bound to it. And we're, we're so far lost, half the time we don't even realize we're lost. We don't even realize it. And we're enslaved to our own destruction. And so Hebrews then is presenting Christ as, as this older brother who, who loves us and who pursues us and has somehow crossed, been able to cross that gulf and been able to find us and meet us where we're at. And he's somehow been able to do what the older brother in the movie could never do. He's been able to save us. The question then becomes, so how does Jesus save us? And I know that sounds like a simple question. But how does he save us? Verse 12. Verse 12 is quoting Psalm 22, 22, where it says, I will declare your name to my brothers in the presence of the congregation. I will sing your praises. That's quoting Psalm 22, 22. And remember a couple of weeks ago I said we need to like think like Hebrews. As we're going through Hebrews, we need to think like ancient, the ancient Jewish community would think. One of the uh, tactics that teachers, rabbis would use is when they're teaching or when they're having debates or discussing, they would quote a verse from the Old Testament, from their scriptures. They would quote a verse, and, and in quoting that verse, because they know that you know all of the Old Testament, right? In quoting that verse, they're bringing to mind the verses surrounding that verse. It's called remez. So they would bring to mind the, verse, the previous verses, before that verse. So he quotes Psalm 22, where, where Jesus says, God, I will declare your name to my brother. So Jesus has become like us. He's become one of our family members. He's become our brother. And Jesus has said, I'm going to be your messenger to my brothers, and I am going to save them. What are the, in, order, in order to understand verse 22, we have to know, it's entirely important to know, what the first 21 verses of Psalm 22 is saying, right? So what I want to do is we're going to read together Psalm 22, verses 1 through 21. You don't have to turn there. 
we've got it up here. <laughs> See, I told you, like, Megan makes it happen, and uh, she's one of those ones that we need to give a hoo-ha to. All right, here we go. Ready? We're going we're gonna to read this together, all right? Can we all do this? 21 verses. Here we go. By the way, <laughs> so we're understanding. Keep this in mind. These are the first 21 verses before this verse 22, which he quotes. And what we're going to find here is just before he quotes this sort of like uh, family-oriented, brotherly-oriented verse, we're going to find 21 verses which, with excruciating detail, describe to us the suffering that Christ is going to face. All right? Let's read together. My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Why are you so far from saving me? So far from the words of my groaning. Oh my God, I cry out by day, but you do not answer. By night, I am, and I am not silent. Yet you are enthroned as the Holy One. You are the praise of Israel. In you our fathers put their trust. They trusted and you delivered them. They cried to you and were saved. In you they trusted and were not disappointed. But I am a worm and not a man. Scorned by men and despised by the people. All who see me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. Let him deliver him, since he delights in him. Yet you brought me out of the womb. You made me trust in you, even at my mother's breast. From birth I was cast upon you. From my mother's womb you have been made up. Do not be far from me, for trouble is near, and there is no one to help me. Many bulls surround me, strong bulls of fashion encircle me, roaring lions tearing their prey, open their mouths wide against me. I am poured out like water, and all my bones are out of joint. My heart has turned to wax, it has melted away within me. My strength is dried up like a posture. And my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They have pierced my hands and my feet. I can count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. But you, O Lord, be not far off. O my strength, come quickly to help me. Deliver my life from the sword, my precious life from the power of the dogs. Rescue me from the mouth of lions. Save me from the horns of the wild oxen. And I will declare your name to my brothers and my sisters. I will speak for you. I will rescue you. This is what Hebrews is, is saying. Like the wayward younger brother who doesn't even know how enslaved he is to his own destruction. Humanity, us, we've drifted downstream. And we're so enslaved in more ways than we realize and can imagine. And the only way for that older brother to save that younger brother is to somehow cross that gulf. In the movie, it would have to, he would have somehow had to get into the gambling and taken that on himself and the alcohol. But he could not. 
But Christ, what he did was he, he, Christ was able to cross that gulf. And you could say that he entered the gambling, or he entered the alcohol, you might say, or, or in our case, he entered the sin, and he entered the suffering, and he entered the death. And he paid the price which we could not pay. Hebrews is saying that Jesus became like us. He became, he's the king of this new world, but he became our brother. And he saved the family. Remember in verse 9, it said, he tasted death for everyone. We just read it. He tasted death for everyone. What does that mean? I want to have a little conversation here. Look at verses 14 and 15, and and we're going to discuss this. I want to hear some, some of your feedback. Verses 14 and 15. Since the children have blood, flesh and blood, it says. Since the children have flesh and blood, he too shared in their humanity so that by his death he might destroy him who holds the power of death, that is the devil, and free those who all their lives were held in slavery by their fear of death. Now how do those two verses relate? Verse 9, it says, He tasted death for everyone. In verse 15, Therefore he liberated everyone from the fear of death. What are some thoughts? Yeah. Perfect love drives out fear. So it would have been perfect love which drove him to taste death for everyone. And perfect love drives out fear. What else? That's good. I think it's in Romans where it says the wages of sin is death. Mm-hmm. So without Jesus, and because we sin, we all deserve death. We deserve hell. And so he took our place and tasted it for us so that although we continue to sin, we do not have to. Right, right. The substitution, the great reversal, where he took our place. Any other thoughts? I think uh, it talks about so people wouldn't have to fear death anymore. People naturally, I think, fear death. It's just kind of natural for people to do. But because Christ died, we don't have to have that fear of death because we know that that he's given us life after that. Wow. So it's like we're still facing it, but we don't have to fear it because Christ went, went before us. On that note, uh, an ancient theologian said this, as a, as a physician, though not needing to taste the food prepared for the sick man, yet in his care tastes first himself that he may persuade the sick man with confidence to venture on the food so that uh, so since all men were afraid of death, he tasted it also himself, so he had no need to do so. What's that saying? He's saying precisely this: if a, if a doctor were to were to make some food for his, for his patient in his care, and the patient was a little iffy about it, you know, maybe it didn't look good. I don't know. I don't know if doctors are good cooks. Probably not. They're doctors. Uh, is that any? Hope none of you guys are like going to medical school or anything. Um. And so the doctor then, because the patient is afraid of this, the doctor then tastes the food himself. And now that the doctor has tasted the food, now that now the, the patient can boldly venture into the food himself. Because the doctor showed him it's okay. 
And this is, this is what the author is saying here. Is that Christ has gone before us. He's tasted death for us to liberate us from something. From our fear of death. In the Hebrew mindset for the Jewish people, they're, they're always referring back to the exodus. Back to these days of slavery, of bondage in Egypt. They were enslaved to the Egyptians, and God liberated them from the exodus, or through the exodus, from Egypt. And so what the author is saying here is there is another slavery. It's a greater slavery that we are all, all of humanity, all of God's people are enslaved to. And that slavery is the fear of death, he's saying. We're enslaved to the fear of death. I uh, recently turned 30, and um, whew, I'm feeling really old now. <laughs> you know? um, my back's going out, you know, like trying to pick this thing up. Uh, actually, I had to move that. <laughs> I had a phone call the other day, and Jess was standing in the kitchen when I took the phone call. And the guy on the other line asked me how old I was. And Jess knew that that was the question I was asked because I was like this. I'm... Third. Jess was like, you can do it. Come on. Third. You can do it. Just come in saying, thirty. It's hard. I'm not, I'm not in my 20s anymore. You know? And I know some of you guys are like, well, it's all relative. You're still young. 30s young. Thank you. I agree. I agree. And anybody who would actually say that is older than me. <laughs> I'm, I'm like a year closer to death than 29 was, you know? And you guys that are older than me are even closer, right? LOL. Just kidding. But why do we fear, why do we fear getting older? Why do we not, we don't like getting older. We don't like it when, you know, the gray hairs start popping out. We don't like it when, when uh, we, we start to feel our age or we start to look our age or we start seeing life go by us and, and days turn into months and months turn into years and all of a sudden years turn into decades and we're like, time didn't used to go this fast. Where's all our time going? You know, my life is just, I'm going to die soon. <laughs> I'm approaching retirement. I haven't saved anything. Like, what am I, what am I doing? And, uh, and we fear it. We fear suffering. We fear sickness. We don't want to get sick. We don't want to suffer. We don't want to die. And so we say all humanity has been enslaved to this fear of suffering and death. And the people that Hebrews is written to, the Hebrews... They're actually living right now under Nero in the Empire of Rome, and the current emperor is Nero. And Nero wasn't a nice guy to Christians, was he? These guys are literally, as they're reading this, this probably was read publicly to the church, whichever church received it. And as they're reading it, these are people who are literally facing their death. They might be your age, and they're literally facing their death. Like, whenever I get into a book like this, and I'm reading it on my own, I always start wondering, like, who's, when, when this was originally read, like, who was there? How did, they, how did they 
take this as it was originally read? Who were these people? And I wonder, like, for some of them, they might not have lived two or three more days after this was read. It's very possible that some of them, as this is being read, they're suffering themselves. I mean, they're going through a time where they can't get the medical attention that they need. They're being ostracized. They could very well be sick and dying of their sickness. Not to mention, if they're caught, they could be burned at the stake, they could be killed, they could be persecuted, thrown in jail, whatever. These are people who are facing physical sickness, they're facing suffering, they're facing their death. And he's writing to them saying, listen, you don't have to fear this. You don't have to fear death. You don't have to fear suffering. And there's, I don't know if it's because of the faith healing movement or not, but there is a lot of confusion when it comes to this issue of healing within the Christian world. We, we have this, sometimes we have this belief that to be a Christian means that we will never get sick and that we will live a long, happy life and that we'll die old. Right? Because isn't that how we always pray? Don't die. Get better. Jesus, Jesus, and Jesus didn't bring health. The way of Jesus brought suffering. And you say, wait a second, didn't he go around healing people? There was healing. And there is healing. And God does heal. There, there can be miraculous healing. But the healing we see in the Bible, because remember, Jesus didn't heal everybody. There were still people dying around him. There were still people who got sick. Some theologians believe that Lazarus died a week or two after he was raised from the dead, killed by the Empire of Rome. So there were, there were, there were still sickness. As Jesus is, as we're seeing him heal, that's a proclamation of, of who he is as the Messiah. That's a, that's, a, that's a powerful word saying, look, God is here. God is with us. But we've got to understand that there is more suffering and more death in the New Testament than there is healing and long-lived lives. So the central point of the, point of the gospel then isn't that I get saved and now God is going to keep me healthy for the rest of my life, and I'll die when I'm 104. The central point of the gospel is that there is something far beyond what we can see and what we can touch and what we can feel. There's something far beyond the current sickness that we have, the suffering that we have, the death that we're facing. There's a hope far beyond that. That's the gospel. So why then does suffering and death shock us? We're always shocked by it. Like, we start to doubt God. Wait a second. We're not supposed to die. We're supposed to live. We're a Christian. No. Why does that shock us? I mean, think of it. Historically, Christians most likely have had shorter life expectancies. They've gone to the most dangerous places in the world, and they've been killed. When a plague came to a city, the Christians would be the ones that stuck around when everybody else left, the Christians stayed and they sat with the sick. And you know what happened? They caught the sickness themselves and they died. They've been martyred. They've been strapped to trees and burned. 
And this is still happening today in some parts of the world. Brother Lawrence, uh, Brother Lawrence is one of my favorite theologians. This is about all we have of Brother Lawrence right here. Um, and if you have it, or if you don't have this book, get it. This is actually a man's copy. <laughs> uh, but thanks to Amanda, I still have it, and I was reading it. And this stuck out to me the other day. Brother Lawrence was somebody who, uh, had, he, he understood suffering. He understood pain. Physical, I'm not talking about emotional, he understood physical pain. And this is what he says. He says, I have been often near expiring. Meaning, there's many times that I've almost died. I've been often near expiring, but I never was so much satisfied as then. There's moments where I almost died. Accordingly, I did not pray for any relief, but I prayed for strength to suffer with courage, humility, and love. Ah, how sweet it is to suffer with God. However great the sufferings may be, receive them with love. It is paradise to suffer and be with him. So that if in this life we would enjoy the peace of paradise, we must accustom ourselves to a familiar, humble, affectionate conversation with him. We must hinder our spirits, wandering, wandering from him upon any occasion. We must make our heart a spiritual temple wherein to adore him incessantly. We must watch continually over ourselves that we may not do nor say nor think anything that may displease him. When our minds are thus employed about God, suffering will become full of unction and consolation. Suffer well. For Brother Lawrence, he's, he's not praying for relief. He's praying for boldness while he faces it. He's praying that God will some, do something in him while he's facing this suffering, while he's facing his own death. That he won't lose hope. That he won't lose faith. And then, and then actually the opposite will happen. That he will increase in faith. He will increase in hope. You see, the gospel, what the gospel does for us is the gospel gives us a peace that passes all understanding. Can we say that together? A peace that passes all understanding. Now, if Christians never suffered, could we ever demonstrate to the world a peace that passes all understanding? It doesn't make sense to those who don't have Christ, it doesn't make sense. How can you have peace during a time like this? You're about to be strapped to a tree and burned to death, and you have peace? That passes all understanding. That doesn't make any sense. The Hebrews here, they're being persecuted. They're literally facing suffering. They're literally facing their death. And here's the thing. If I wrote to them, I'm going to be honest. If I wrote to them, and probably if you wrote to them as well, you know what we would say? We would say something like, Dear Hebrews, I hear you're suffering and facing death. So sorry to hear about that. I'm praying that God relieves you of this, that you don't suffer, 
and that you don't die, and that you live a long and happy life. I would, I, it would be something like that. Probably not that corny, and that you know, but it would be something along those lines. But it strikes me as so interesting that the writer of Hebrews doesn't say that. What he says, as he's reminding them of the gospel, because, think about this, for, the, for these Jewish Christians, all they would have to do is renounce Jesus and just live as a regular Jew, and their lives would be spared. But because of Jesus, because Jesus is bringing them all this trouble, he's reminding them of how important Jesus is, that he's your king, that he's your brother, and and he's also reminding them of the work of Jesus, that he, because of his work, because he has tasted death for you, you can now suffer well. You can die well. You can be bold. You can have courage. And so therefore, we should rest in this. We should be able to have this peace that passes all understanding. We should be able to boldly go to the darkest of all places in the city or in the world or wherever that might take us and, and be willing to just give whatever it takes. If that means I sit with a sick person and I get their sickness, if that means that I, 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 I die, we're willing to, to, to go to the extreme in presenting the gospel and being the people of Jesus. We don't stick knives in ourselves intentionally trying to bring us suffering. That's, that's weird. That's not what this is about. But we don't fear it. We have a whole different kind of understanding. We have a whole different approach to life. And you might be sitting here thinking like, you know, that's all well and fine and I get it, but at the same time, that's hard. Like, how do we really, how does Jesus really save us from this fear? Because it's one thing to sit while we're all feeling good Right? Although some of you may be suffering. I don't know. But it's one thing to sit on a Sunday morning and talk about it. It's another thing when, when the suffering or, or our death is looming in front of us. It's, it's, to, to be saved from the fear of this death. From the fear of this suffering. Look at verse 17. He says this, For this reason... He had to be made like his brothers in every way in order that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in service to God, that he might make atonement for the sins of the people. So Jesus is the king of this new world. He's also our brother who has come and he's tasted death for us and he saved us. But He's also our high priest who then has gone before God. He's made intercession before God. He's, he's spoke to God on our behalf and he's made atone, atonement for our sins. So what this is telling us then is that Jesus not only died with us, he not only tasted suffering with us, but he also died for us. He tasted suffering for us. My family and I, like a year ago or so, we were swimming at a, in a hotel pool until the manager came and said it's for hotel residents only. Sorry. Just kidding. We were hotel residents. Just <laughs> like, you serious? Weird. So we were hotel residents swimming in the hotel pool. And... Um, the girls, our two little girls, were at first afraid of the water. 
especially when I took them and I stuck them on the ledge, and I was like, hey, jump in, and I'll catch you. And they're like, <laughs> and they do one of these things, like they go up to the corner like this. All right, all right, all right. Uh, you know, they go back up to the corner, count, count, one, two, uh, you know. And uh, so finally, like, they get up to the corner, you know, and, uh, and, they, and they to the edge of the pool, and one, two, three, and they jump, you know, and then I catch them before they go into the water and drown. I catch them right there. And after that first time, like, you know, the whole, uh, for like the next 18 hours, I'm putting them on the ledge and jumping in, especially Jane, just over and over and over again. Um, and then the natural question in my mind is like, okay, so now has she gotten too used to the water? What if like I'm sitting on the side of the pool now? Uh, is she going to jump in because she's so used to the water and she thinks she's fine? So I watched her and that wasn't the case. She was still definitely afraid of the water. And I was thinking about this the other day and I asked Jane, I was like, why didn't you why didn't you jump into the water when I wasn't there? We were, talk, we were talking about it. And she was like, well, because you weren't there to catch me and I would drown. Like, and then she, but then she said, but now that I lost my tooth and I'm going to be six, maybe I can now. <laughs> <laughs> All right. Um, but here's the thing, like, for, for Jaden and Eden, they're... they're the fear of the water is, is only really gone when they know that I'm there to catch them. It's the only way for the fear to be completely taken away is when they know that they are not going to drown and then I'm right there. In verse 10 it says, the author says, it is fitting. It is fitting that God it is fitting that God uh, should make the author of their salvation perfect through suffering. Like, nowhere else do we see the very heart of God laid bare. Nowhere else do we see God just fully God than in Christ, reconciling the world to himself, reconciling humans to himself, becoming like us, becoming our brother, and Entering our suffering for us and tasting death for us, tasting dying with us, but also dying for us. Is is there anyone here who fears death? And you know it's because you are way downstream and there is no one there to catch you. If you jump in those waters, there's nobody there to catch you. And you have to recognize that Jesus died with you and he died for you. And he made atonement for your sins. He paid the price for you and he brought you into relationship with God. Is there anyone here who is fearing, you fear suffering, sickness? And you must repent and see suffering as an opportunity to, to, to draw closer to God and to demonstrate to the world around you that the gospel brings a peace that passes all understanding. Is there anyone here who may be called to suffer with Christ? 
to suffer for Christ. Called to stay with the sick, to not run, to go to the darkest places of the world or the darkest places of the city and to be the light and to, to, to be the good news of Jesus Christ and to share the good news of Jesus Christ through word and deed. And you need to boldly face those waters. Is there anyone here who has been doubting God because you haven't been healed or because a friend was never healed and died or and, and you've actually turned the pain in tor- towards anger towards God and you need to repent? Is there anyone here who has a younger sibling or a sibling for that matter or a friend who is sort of that, that breakaway sibling? There's somebody who's, who's always getting into scrapes. They're always pushing the boundaries, and they're, they're on this spiral, and they're, they're caught up in their own destruction. There's nothing you can say to them. You've tried, but it's come across as preaching. You've looked at them, but it come across, comes across as looking down your nose at them. And you need to just let them go and trust the brother who was able to save you. The brother who pursued you in your darkness in your suffering and open your heart to his good news, to his salvation, to his redemption. And you need to pray that God will open up this person's heart as well. Prayer changes things. It does. It's powerful. Christ has been made like us. He's not only our king, he's not only the king of this new world, but he's also our brother. And he's not the kind of brother that looks down his nose at you. But he's the kind of brother who passionately loves you, has sought you, and has paid the price for you that you can never pay on your own. And has liberated you from the fear of suffering and the fear of death. Trust him. Worship him. Let's pray. God, in in Christ, you've reconciled humanity to yourself. And we see your heart fully laid bare in this reconciliation. We trust that you are there to catch us and we boldly face life and death because Christ has been made our brother and has saved us. Help us to trust you. Give us faith and belief so we may be the people of Jesus and spread this good news. In Jesus' name, amen.